a fluffy white dog. How does a fluffy white dog inspire a digital currency that is skyrocketing in value? Yes, this week on Download This Show, forget cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin, we are delving into the weird world of Dogecoin. Plus, Google was taken to court by the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission over misleading certain users about how it collects location data. The ACCC won, but what happens next? Plus, a fatal Tesla crash under the microscope and the co-founder of Adobe Software and co-inventor of the PDF, no less, dies at the age of 81. We look back at our most beloved PDF memories, which is absolutely a thing. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to download this show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And in front of me, I have uh, tech media and marketing reporter with the AFR, Natasha Gillazo. Welcome back. Thanks for having me in the actual studio this time. It's very exciting. This is the first time we've ever actually met yeah, physically. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I know you via like that parasocial relationship <laughs> of your vast media presence, but for you, yeah. This I feel is like, like I know you through talking to you, yeah, but now yeah. it's actually nice to have you In here. In the flesh, I'm here. And joining you, we have Daniel Van Boom from CNET, news editor extraordinaire. Welcome back. Thank you very much for having me back. We've met many times, but you start to check your notes to say my name, <laughs> I noticed. But well, no, that's all right. Because I wanted to pronounce his name properly. I'll, I appreciate it. Van I appreciate Boom. it. Van Boom. Van Boom. Yeah. There we go. All right, uh, lots to work through in the show today. Uh, there was a major legal fracker with Google and Australia. What happened? Basically, the ACCC, the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, they sued Google over basically this thing where on Android devices there was a two-step process to hide your location tracking data. One said location history, one said web and app activity. And what was going down was people were switching off location history, thinking like, cool, Google's not tracking my data or location anymore. But it came to light in a bunch of news media articles in about 2018 that actually there was this secret second step that you had to do to fully kind of turn off the collection and data issue. So ACCC got involved on behalf of Australian consumers and said, this is misleading. Google said, is it? (laughs) ACCC said, yes, and we're going to take you to court over it. And they've basically won that case. So they've bared that out in court. Why would you have to have a secret second level? Well, Reportedly, once so the Associated Press reported on this first, and when that came out, apparently there was a OS word meeting in Google. That's what they <laughs> called the meeting, the official meeting. Reportedly, uh, <laughs> where they were like, "Oh, we didn't realize we did that," and then they they fixed it. So I'm not sure. I mean, you can with Google, there's no shortage of ill will. So you can say like, "Oh, they were just doing clever stuff to get as much data as possible," but it did sound like possibly it was just a situation where they didn't realise what they had done kind of thing, but also probably not. So what are, what exactly are the penalties for Google here, Natasha? <laughs> well, technically, it's up to a fine of $1.1 million per breach, which could potentially be like some insane fine, right? Yeah. But the court will, the next step in this case is the court will look at sort of the cumulative impact of how much consumers were harmed, Google's behaviour, you know, whether Google made steps to ameliorate the situation or mm. whether they went in on being a little bit sus. So we don't know, but the the penalties were actually changed under the Act. We don't need to know the details, but basically they're kind of uh, less capped than what they used to be, which means that you can have bigger fines handed down by the federal court. 
It's interesting how you prove harm to users though, won't it? Well, I guess in this case, it's like the idea that there's certain actions that are illegitimate for companies to take and, yeah. and lying is a form of harm, right? I mean, yeah. I mean, that's why I tell my children, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what comes next, Daniel? Well, the ACCC is touting this as a world first in the sense of Google being taken to court for misleading customers, specifically on uh, misleading data collection terms. And they're kind of hoping the hint, hint of that is that uh, other governments will take after ACCC's lead. Legislate, not legislate, where you take someone to court. To sort of like pursue other (laughs) actions like this. Because I think it's overblown that this is some big world first. Because the thing is, like, it's actually pretty, it's pretty old school kind of case type to say, you lied to consumers, we're going to sue you and fine you for that. Mm. But the newness here is that it's around data. So that's kind of like what feels a bit fresh here. But it would be totally overblown to say that courts around the world are going to follow this federal court decision. There's kind of, they're always looking to what the ACCC in Australia are doing, but it's not going to have some kind of huge domino um, knock on effect in that kind of way, unlike some kind of different areas of tech law. Because Google has been in the European Commission, find them 5 billion. American dollars, 4.6 billion euros, I believe, at the time for abusing their market position. And the India's highest court has done similar things. So, And those didn't cause like crazy knock-on effects that brought down Google or anything, anything like that. Although, obviously, with the recent media code in Australia, Canada is looking to follow the footsteps and the EU is. So the EU, so there, there is some precedent for other governments and other legislative bodies following from Australia's precedent. But I think what Google would have to be worried about in this particular case is that uh, the EU is reading its Digital Markets Act, which kind of uh, sets out guidelines as to how these massive platforms deal with their consumers. And I think there is a possibility that the EU legislators will see this and say, hey, we should integrate some of that into into the Digital Markets Act, which would, like the GDPR thing, as we can see, like where the EU goes kind of is where. That's the reason why you have to click through. Exactly. Yes, I yep. will accept cookies and yep. you continue to not uh, pay any attention whatsoever. Yep. So blame, maybe the, blame Europe. Exactly. <laughs> maybe the long term of this is it'll, it'll be a, a new wave of click-ups that you have to click like, yes, okay, the data, I know. Mm. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. We have Daniel Van Boom from CNET and Natasha Gillazo from the AFR. Mark Fennell is my name. And... Cryptocurrencies have been an increasing conversation and recently there's been ideas like non-fungible tokens as well, which I guess sort of feeds into the same conversations. But in the realm of, of cryptocurrency, obviously we talk about Bitcoin a lot. There is another and it is called, well, there's a few, <laughs> <laughs> but the one I want to talk about is called Dogecoin, which has uh, had a huge impact in the last couple of weeks. But I feel like if we're going to talk about Dogecoin, we have to go back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. How does Dogecoin get its name, Natasha? Well, Doge is a, a meme. It's kind of like one of the OG memes of that Shiba dog um, that cute, has that fluffy. cute white fluffy dog kind of giving side eye to the camera. And then Comic Sans would be uh, describing a meme as such a weird experience, <laughs> but, you know, much cool. So wow. And then that was the, its first generation. And then that spawned, you know, a million imitator memes. But it's part of the internet culture, internet mm. lexicon is Doge. So Doge obviously being a spinoff of, I mean, I assume it's a spinoff of Dog, right? I think you're yeah, I mean, safe that, in that assumption. Yeah, You never know. Internet parlance for Dog. So how does an internet meme of a fluffy, adorable dog with Comic Sans riding around it become a cryptocurrency, Daniel? Uh, an Australian fella named Jackson Palmer in 2013 thought, crypto's kind of dumb. I wonder if it'd be funny if I <laughs> made a coin with a dog on it and just circulated that. 
And then a fella at IBM saw that and was like, I can provide the technology behind that. And then it started as a joke. So in 2013, that was when Bitcoin first hit $1,000. Mm. So this was like three, three bubbles ago. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. We now measure time in bubbles. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was the first the first real, I guess you would say, bull market for cryptocurrency. And to kind of parody the absurdity of cryptocurrency, you know, Jackson Palmer, and I can't remember the guy's name at IBM, but they were essentially like, oh, this would be funny. Uh, and that turned into, so now, uh, now moving forward, Doge, Dogecoin is worth, has a market cap of $50 billion. So it is literally a $50 billion joke. Right. So it's also done so well that it's overwhelmed something called Robinhood. Explain yeah. to me what Robinhood is. Robinhood is a trading platform. So you can buy and sell equities, but you can also buy and sell cryptocurrencies. Um, it's mostly US-based, like we you, or anyone who wants to trade in Australia probably wouldn't use Robinhood, but basically uh, demand for buying Dogecoin last week crashed the app. And they've had a few kind of crashes like this, but this is one such. And it made the news because there's been a lot of attention on Robinhood. There's been a lot of attention on cryptocurrency and people were people were annoyed. Like they were trying to place trades and the app crashes at a crucial time. So it's probably worth talking about why there's been so much focus on Robinhood, because it's been because it, it sort of enables very fast action transactions, which has a sort of destabilizing effect on the wider market. Is that a like reasonable sort of? Well, the the barrier to entry is very low. So normally, you know, if you want to trade stocks or what have you, you need to go through a, a broker of some description and there's some a lot a lot more fees and the minimum amount you can place is higher, like relatively higher. So Robin Robinhood has essentially enabled a bunch of particularly young people to kind of yeah, like invest in stocks like they would bet in like bet on a horse race at a TAB. Is that right. what people do? I don't Absolutely. know the part. Sure. But yeah. These, you can place these microtransactions through the app for like $5 and yeah. almost have a bit of a play around and mm. learn about investing through that way rather than treat it as some really serious thing that you only do when you're like 50 years old. Um, it's it's opened it up to a lot more people. And there's, there's a bunch of trading platforms like this, like mm. eToro, Stake, Superhero. It's not the only one. Mm. Yeah, but I think that one of the interesting and something I didn't really kind of process until more commentary came out about Robinhood was the idea that because it's so much easier and because you can deal in smaller amounts, there is a sort of an, like an unexpected destabilizing effect yeah. where there's just that much more movement happening all the time yeah. Yeah. that it's harder to predict. Whereas if you've got, you know, a smaller number of bigger movements, you can kind of, um, there's an in, inbuilt stability to that yeah. as a system. Well, economy, like people who wear suits and deal with, you know, uh, stock markets in their daily jobs, uh, they take very seriously the you know, um, the price signals, like if there's a bunch of money moving to this stock, what, what broader trend does that reflect? But now when you have a bunch of people on Reddit being like, Hey, wouldn't it be funny if we all bet $5, not bet if we all, well, literally the subreddit is called wall street bets. So yes, wouldn't it be funny if we all put 10 bucks on GameStop to see if we could get that stock to go up to a thousand dollars that no longer has the, the price and the signal, the price is meant to denote is no longer connected. Mm. And actually Dogecoin kind of grew out of the same kind of movement at the same time as people on, on Reddit were like, hey, it'd be funny if we got GameStop to be $1,000. People in crypto communities were like, you reckon we could get Dogecoin to 10 cents? Because at the time it was worth half a cent. And uh, four months later, they did it. And now a year on, the thing with Dogecoin is it's up 7,000, so almost 8,000%. And so to compare that, if house prices are up 20% in a year, yeah. if the ASX is up 3% in the year, Dogecoin would have been the best and smartest investment a year ago. And I saw this in real time. So a guy I know, um, I won't rat him out in terms of his actual do it, name. Do it. No, no, I won't rat him out. But he, he, as a joke, he saw that Dogecoin was going up. So he tipped 
$10,000 into Dogecoin, went to bed high, woke up and had made 40K overnight. Was and then like, he was really high. And he was like, whoa, cashed out. But basically it's like that that was a real thing that happened that I witnessed and I was sort of so blown away. But we laugh about it and we joke about it, but there's clearly something going on that defies ordinary explanations of economists, mm. ordinary explanations and sort of like those analysts that we speak to. That was a real thing that happened mm. and... Yeah. So what can you, I mean, this might be a really dumb question, but but what can you do once your Dogecoin has reached an astonishing value? Can you cash out? Like yeah. what like what can you do with that? Absolutely. So you could um uh transfer uh, you could transfer your Dogecoin into a like a US Tether, which is sort of essentially cashing out, right. but I I guess like some context also into the whole like crypto Dogecoin, what's going on here is it's really, really, really easy and really quick for people to release a coin onto these exchanges. So obviously you've not just got Dogecoin, you've got Bitcoin, Mirror, Ethereum, Litecoin, Ripple. There's new coins coming onto these exchanges every day. They all sound like characters from a fantasy novel. Right, they do, which is (laughs) part of the fun of it. But to compare that, if you want to list a public company like Deliveroo or Airbnb or Airtasker, it costs like $50 dollars it takes like a year it's a very slow friction filled process whereas you can set up a coin in as a joke in half an hour so there's just a speed that's happening in crypto to how things can change that isn't what we normally see in you know the companies that i know and i understand and you know the speed of it though daniel like the 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 fact that it can grow does it work in inverse like it it goes really high and then it can crash the next day what does that do to like confidence of well traders. Uh, everyone who most people who invest in crypto know that that's the game like the you can your fortunes can be made in an hour and you can lose more than a fortune in the same amount of time right some context to make this more slightly more understandable uh within crypto there's kind of two types of so there's bitcoin and ether which are the two main ones and then below them you have thousands tens of thousands of things called altcoins and these can be broadly two different types of coins one is one where the owners say like hey this is a new technological investment of the bl- the blockchain and it's going to be the future and the other is a meme coin which of which dogecoin is the first that's just like this is funny like there's literally a coin called meme and it was listed last year for one dollar and it's now trading at four thousand dollars because people are like that's funny the market sentiment is more important to crypto coins as actual real world updates to a product are for like a company like Apple, if that makes sense. Is there anything that separates Dogecoin from Bitcoin? To, like, is there anything that technically separates them? One thing that techni- technically separates them is that there's a finite amount of Bitcoin, yeah. whereas Dogecoin there isn't. So there's like a controlled supply of Bitcoin. There's yeah. only so many that have been issued that can never be added to. Um, so there's kind of a scarcity or an artificially created scarcity around it. But with Dogecoin, that's not the case. So there's sort of limitless Dogecoin that can be issued. So in that that's sense, it's closer technical... to, to dollars in that sense, like that, it, like if need be, you can make money. Kind of, except er, with dollars, obviously the Federal Reserve or whatever, the central bank can issue it. But in Dogecoin, you and I can just mine it. So the community can the community mining it adds more. So for reference, Bitcoin will ultimately have twenty one million Bitcoins mm. mined by twenty one forty. I've never had to say that date out loud before. Anyway, and you where, will uh, eventually will. you'll live through it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas there are currently over one hundred fifty billion uh, Dogecoin tokens. So that is so it may be kind of confusing to hear like, well, Bitcoin's eighty thousand dollars and Dogecoin is forty cents. Like, why is forty cents a big deal? While well, there's I can't do the math on the difference between the 
division oh, of because there's nothing more engaging on radio. The supplies. So um GoCoin is built on a coin called Litecoin, which yeah. is the, the the premise of that is it can be mined infinitely, whereas whereas the value of Bitcoin is its scarcity essentially. Right. So that would that would that would essentially be the only important technical difference. I just think it's a really interesting time in that even conceptually Bitcoin and crypto is like testing our mental boundaries of how value is created, mm. um, how human beings assign value to to things in the digital era as well. And also the kind of like cognitive tipping point that we're at, because I think that we're also at a point in time where because um, more and more people are investing into cryptocurrencies. These big actual funds have to seriously, you know, like Fidelity or who manage really rich people's money have to actually look at these asset classes and be like, hey, should we, are we being irresponsible if we don't recommend you tip 1% of your um, portfolio into crypto, which then starts to kind of self-perpetuate the mm. the realness of the value. But I mean, I'm just, I'm just sitting back and observing. I, I, I don't fully understand everything that's going on, but I think it's important to think about and reflect on and at least try and engage with what's going on online. You are listening to the voices of Natasha Gillazo from the AFR and Daniel Van Boom from CNET. Mark Fennell is my name. And for the first time in nearly 20 years, I regret dropping maths at the end of year 10. <laughs> this is the exact moment. I've never regretted it until this exact moment. Uh, changing up tact entirely, this is Download This Show, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And in Texas, two people uh, have been killed when a Tesla with no one in the driver's seat crashed into a tree and burst into flames. This is a disconcerting thing for a number of reasons. Daniel, how did this happen that we are aware of at least currently? Uh, that we are aware of no one was in the driver's seat. So it were, there was uh, the owner of the car was in the passenger seat and his friend was in the in the back, one of the back seats behind the driver's seat. So they were, I guess, uh, strongly testing out the autopilot feature, which Tesla recommends that you don't rely exclusively on. You know, yeah. never take your hands off the wheel. So this is not a driverless car situation. Well, it is a driverless car situation in the sense that they were using it against recommendation like a driverless car. Mm. So the, it's not like they, the guy had his hands on the wheel and the car just like went fully rogue and said, I'm going to crash into this thing. It was, he was completely not even, not even with his hands not on the wheel, not in, not even in the driver's seat. Yeah. Because I think when this story first bubbled up, because there's been a, a, you know, obviously increasing investment in driverless car technology. When I first saw the headline, I'm like, oh, that's another driverless car accident. Mm. But it's not quite what the case is here. Like they, they were using a car in a way that it's not, you're not supposed to use it, right? Well, that we're aware of. That's what Elon Musk and Tesla have kind of come back with as the sort of like first um, round explanation, factual explanation is sort of this idea that autopilot wasn't actually engaged and the owner hadn't purchased the rights to use the car as a driverless vehicle. So there's this sort of like fact contest coming out, but that's the information that we have right now. So we'll go off that. But regardless of exactly what's happened, which will come to light, I'm sure, as they do a proper investigation, it's just really sad. Like any fatality mm. caused by, you know, vehicles and new technology is really sad. And Yeah. Well, I was going to say, I think the interesting thing is, you know, as this came out, I think it was the day prior to this, or maybe it was in response to this, but Elon Musk... Uh, they released Tesla's quarterly, you know, accident update. And it was, you know, you're a fraction, you're a small percentage. Sorry, the odds of you getting into a car crash in a driverless car is a fraction of the percent of the actual incidence of crashes on the road. But I think that gets into a fascinating kind of psychological idea of like, 
even though I know if I were to step into a driverless car, much like stepping into an airplane, I know I'm much safer than mm. if I were behind the wheel. But there's that idea of lacking control. Like how how do you, how do you guys feel about that? Well, the psychological like they've been they've done a lot of research into like the psychology of not being in control of the car because we sort of have it ingrained in us. And our generation have it ingrained in us because we are a generation that sat in cars that were driven by drivers growing up. And then those of us that drive learn how to drive. So there's a bunch of like learned behaviors that attach with that. I remember there was a bunch of research and the research was where do you sit a person in a fully self-driving car? Because uh, if you put them in the traditional position where they face forward, there's a bunch of like learned expectations, whereas you put them facing inwards or backwards or it kind of changes, it moves it closer to being a sort of a learned sort of public transport space where you don't have an expectation and the anxiety of I should be controlling this doesn't kick into gear. And that, I find that stuff really fascinating because it kind of breaks your mentality. I'm also mindful of the fact that, you know, I've got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and in the back of my mind I'm thinking I may be the last generation of parents that actually has to teach their children how to drive, mm. if if that at all. And I wonder what that, that like the, psychology, the psychological leap of that is. But, yeah, Natasha, for you, what do you think? I mean, I've never actually been in an autonomous vehicle. And I think that would be the real like moment for me, like stepping inside one and actually having that feeling. From a distance, I'm I'm okay with it. I trust that the best and brightest minds can put their minds to the test and, and, and work it out in the same way that cars initially would have been really frightening and, and really kind of intense when people understood horses. So I'm, I kind of trust the process, if you will. The weird thing with the Tesla thing or an additional thing about electric vehicles that I find electric vehicles in general is this thing about when they crash, the fires caused mm. are really hard to put out. So in the example that we're talking about today with the two fatalities in Texas, this fire was just burning and raging for like four hours and they couldn't really put it out in ordinary means. So that's kind of another facet to it outside the who's in control of the vehicle is that these vehicles are different in other ways that we haven't predicted as well. And that that's kind of more scary to me, to yeah. be honest, especially in a country like Australia, where I think about fire, a lot of us have like a lot of cultural baggage and personal experience with bushfires. So I'd want to know more about that and how that works. Yeah, the reignition of the battery is a, is a part of it. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think another takeaway from this is I think there's a bit of mixed messaging around because, you know, Tesla does say you should not rely on the autonomous driving and officially that's the word, but then I think there's some mixed messaging when it's it's called autopilot and like the 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 phrases used to describe them all kind of indicate like, hey, this will totally work, but you shouldn't do it, wink. Whereas I, th <laughs> I think if you if the I think they should probably be renamed to reinforce the idea that this is not yet you cannot rely on this just yet. I think if there's a practical way to make this not happen again, uh, I think that's like a step in that direction. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology, and culture. And very quickly before we go, uh, Charles Geschke, the co-founder of Adobe, has died at the age of 81. And now I will invite you to share your warm, fuzzy stories about the first time you used a PDF, which he invented. <laughs> tell me, tell me, what are your warmest memories of the PDF? <laughs> well, my family sat me down around the fireplace and said, I can't, th I can't think of a funny punchline to this joke. <laughs> 
<laughs> I like that you attempted. I tried. I, I really, as I tried, I was like, this will be all right. This will I be mean, all right. no one ever thinks about the PDF, but it's kind of nice to be reminded that somebody actually created them in the sense. And the PDF has an important role to play, Natasha. The PDF? I sent a PDF to some of my students just the other day and I thought I didn't actively practice <laughs> gratitude in the moment. But, you know, today um, with the death of Charles Geschke, it seems like a, a good a day as any to be like, you know what, that's a great format to send relatively large files <laughs> seamlessly over Gmail. So. What a format. What, what a, a format. format. I, I think the, I mean, like with all seriousness, it, it is, well, it is actually like fun to think in a sense. Ah, fun's maybe too strong. But interesting <laughs> to think that, you know, what we take so for granted was at the time pretty revolutionary. So there's the technology that Adobe kind of, um, uh, was at the forefront of is uh, called what you see is what you get. Mm. So whatever you... WYSIWYG. So, WYSIWYG, exactly. So whatever uh, occurs on the screen, if you print it, that is uh, that is what you'll get when you print it out on paper. And then the PDF was kind of the next version of that where if I write up this document and send it to you, Mark Fennell, no matter what computer or software you're operating, you'll see it, you'll see it as I sent it. Mm. Which, like I said, today we're like, yeah, obviously. But back then <laughs> people were like, it oh my lord! It would have been so visionary at the time in the eighties. So it's like he's, it's founded in nineteen eighty two. Apple invests in nineteen eighty five. I think they acquire Photoshop. They didn't invent Photoshop, but mm. I, I really do like to kind of cast my mind back to actually them seeing into the future of of publishing and printing and how that be made. And even with Photoshop, there was that whole uh, cultural transition to we can uh, alter images really easily, and we can like you which know, which is forever change, culture, which is forever really. change culture. You know, and the whole like discussions around how they change bodies and remove like blemishes and the debates that that spawned, but also the the art that that's created as well. Mm. I do like thinking, you know, back in time to when things would have been so out there mm. and what to us now is is normal. Well, Adobe was actually like something of a disruptor, not something of a disruptor. It was totally, quite the disruptor. Yeah. So the the uh, Chuck Gesky and uh, John uh, Warnock were they worked at Xerox mm. and they want they said like hey we've got this new printing technology you guys should use it and Xerox were like yeah no nah, it's right and then and then they started Adobe which by the way is named after a river in California which I didn't know um, but yeah and that and essentially that created laser the technology they pioneered led to laser printers which which re- which resulted in printing being much more accessible like the again the idea of using a computer and a printer and that's all you need to print anything back then was like so i don't have to go to the printing press and Mm. you know spend all this money and then you know later with with photoshop you would pay people hundreds or thousands of dollars to touch up a photo whereas now you know with a 600 dollar 700 dollar program whatever it cost back then that that was again like it's kind of destabilized a, a whole industry pretty much it's striking listening to you talk how much adobe has come to dominate the creative world because now it's not just photoshop or PDFs. It's also, you know, Premiere <laughs> and Audition flashed. and, you know, and Flash. Yeah. So all these things that like really the visual language of the, of the modern age, a lot of it has been driven by Adobe as a company. And in some ways they've become that at the forefront of that, of how, how we communicate visually. But at the same time, they've now got challenges, right? So It's already a bit folksy to think about like Adobe as the the kings kings and queens of the creative world. Like for me, TikTok is the obvious displacer of Premiere, not because we don't need professional editing software, but because the ease at which teenagers mm. or users of the app can edit and have effects that professional videographers would have would have dreamed of of Premiere or Canva. I was going to say Canva's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah. As just like making graphic design so easy and accessible and Melanie Perkins expressly was like, I'm going to take on Adobe. Like when she was a 19-year-old coming up with that vision, 
that was that was what she wanted to do and, and they're broadly achieving that. Mm. All right, that is all we've got time for on the show this week. Thank you both so much. Daniel Van Boom from CNET, thank you much, Lee, for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me back. Natasha Gillazo from the AFR, thanks for coming back. Thanks for the tech banter. Always a pleasure. That is what I'm here for. I have this one job on this <laughs> show and this is what I do. Uh, I think everyone knows I don't have one job. Anyway, uh, that's all we've got time for on the show this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the program, make sure you leave a review on whichever podcasting app you happen to peruse. You do you. And with that, I'll catch you next time. My name's Mark Fennell, and thanks for listening to Download This Show. Hold up. 